Welcome to the discussion, how government contracting policies impact national security. Sponsored by George Mason University. Here's today's moderator, Tom Temin. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today is Dr. Jerry McGinn, Executive Director of the Center for Government Contracting in the School of Business at George Mason University. Dr. McGinn, good to have you in. Great. It's good to be here, Tom. Let's begin with what your program is all about. Is it the most boring thing in the world or is contracting really exciting? And do you cater mostly to the government or the contractor side? Well, we like to think it's exciting. So We do too, by the way. <laughs> The, um, yes, so the center is, uh, is the first of its kind in the, uh, in the country and, frankly, in the, in the world. Well, we're looking at both the, the business of government and how the companies that support um, the, uh, the business of government. So we're looking at the policy, business, and regulatory issues that animate the overall government contracting community, which, as you know, is about 500 plus billion sure. of dollars. And my role is to, 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 was to establish that center, and now we're, we're operating it. And we have... Um, we have three lines of effort to, to do that implementation around research, education and training, and collaboration. And so each of those, the research we're doing, we're writing shorter pieces and, and doing longer form pieces around the business and policy issues. Well, there's no shortage of material. I mean, this is a really uh, fermenting area. And in the training area, who comes in? Is it well, undergraduates, so graduates? Yeah, exactly. People? So, so the, there are the education trainings where we're doing a number of initiatives to really meet the needs of today's workforce and the future workforce. So we're, we're actually doing, um, we've set up an undergraduate uh, minor in government contracting for our undergraduate students. Um, to help give them a sense of what the FAR is and what a research, um, RFP is so that they, when they enter the workforce. For graduate students, we've re, we're really relaunching our executive MBA program around focus around national security and government contracting. And then we have a number of courses for our graduate students as well. And then we're doing, as you say, training. We're doing executive education or executive development to really help, again, meet the needs of the, the workforce, the executives today uh, and in the future. Well, well, it is a fascinating topic, and we have some fixed things and some changing things. And against the backdrop of the FAR and the DFAR, which change from time to time, but those are kind of the fixtures mm -hmm. and the uh, firmament under which all of this plays out. But there are a lot of trends in government contracting that are current. Tell us what you're seeing uh, mainly, and let's talk about one of the things that's a hot button for a lot of people, right. and that's the other transaction authorities, the OTAs. Yeah, right. No, it's, it's, a, it's a great point, Tom. It is, there, there, is, uh, there are a number of efforts um, um, in the Department of Defense, particularly, has been heavily focused on using uh, OTs or OTAs as the transactions. And there, it's really trying to find more rapid ways to get things under, get things moving, to get things under contracts, per se, to build prototypes and the like. And then you, um, and there's, you see that government-wide as well, where they're trying to do things to really speed the process more. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's strengths around that, but in some ways it, it's, um, you know, that you're sort of going around the system by doing OTs. So you're building prototypes and, and the like, and uh, that has um, benefits, but it's, it remains to be seen, you know, whether or not those will then lead to longer-term programs. That, um, so. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of a gap that has to be leapt over, which yes. is from prototype to system of record and exactly. to production quantities. Exactly. And exactly. then you have the possible conflict of interest or issues whether that prototyper yeah. should have the production and volume and intellectual property rights and so forth. Exactly. How do, how do you teach people and what are you seeing in the way that's being dealt with? Well, that, that's where we're sort of at a new frontier. Um, and that's part of, the, again, the role of the center is that there are different, both government and industry have a kind of points of view and opinions on how those things were developed. 
But there's been very little fact-based research on these kind of issues. Middle tier acquisition, which is a big focus, you know, the Section 804 authority that DOD's been given, the OTs, and how do you then transition these things to programs of record? Or is it, do we need to really change how we do a defense acquisition or overall acquisition, sure. you know, federal government acquisition? And those are some of the research issues that we want to dive into. And I'm curious, because research is, is the way we really understand long-term trends and what, what good policy development might come from. And so when looking at the 804 authorities and OTA, do you find that there's enough data reported in a format that's usable to power the research that you need to do? Because um, transparency I, has been questioned in, the, in that whole OTA area. Um, well, I, th I think there are ways to get at that. I mean, um, uh, the... Um, but it just hasn't been the work done yet. So I actually have a white paper in to see if we can get some funded research to, to look at some of these issues. And then I can better answer you that, you know, um, after that research is uh, underway. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, so well, you'll find out in other ways exactly, whether the data exactly. is there. Because I mean, you know, the data is really yeah. what, what powers so much of the research that's done. And I wanted to ask you about the merger and acquisition environment. Mm -hmm. And you know, the Raytheon United Technologies is getting a lot of attention mm -hmm. right now. Do you feel that that has an actual effect on DOD? And the reason I ask is, before the merger, there was one source of Patriot missiles. Before the merger, there was one source of the F-35 engine. Mm -hmm. After the merger, there's one source of Patriot missiles and one source for the F-35 engine. Mm -hmm. They can't buy elevators there anymore. So what's your sense of the merger and acquisition situation, Right. and is this one emblematic of anything? Right, no, I, I think you, you really kind of hit the right exact point. So uh, one of the things in my former government role was that was to review emergency acquisition from a defense perspective. And what the, the lens through which government, um, uh, this is the DO Department of Justice or the Federal Tra Trade Commission, and then whatever agency is involved, looks at it is through competition. How does a merger impact or not impact competition? And that's the lens through which Department of Defense and Department of Justice will look at this uh, Raytheon and UTX. And, and, you know, they, there isn't a lot, I mean, um, in terms of if you look on the face of things. Uh, whereas, you know, if there were a big merger between Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman, that would, you know, they've tried that once before back in the late 90s, and mm -hmm. the government said no. Um, but this is a, a, a it, with the lens through which the government looks at it, it says, does it impact competition? Um, and uh, does it, you know, reduce kind of the options for the government to uh, deliver a warfighter, uh, systems to the warfighter? Because in the long term, we've seen this kind of thing in aircraft that the military buys. There was Douglas got sold to McDonnell, and then that whole yep. thing got mm -hmm. sold to Boeing. Yep. And over the years, there's been, there must have been nine or ten airframe yep. manufacturers at one time. Now there's really only one or two right. domestically that right. DOD can source from, right. maybe three. And so... The question is, is there a long-term change here? Yeah, um, yeah, that, that is a good question. And you do see consolidation overall. And so the question really is here is, you know, how big is big? How, uh, how big is too big, I guess, right? And uh, in the case of, you know, aircrafts, you're seeing, you have seen reduction. When you get closer to one, you know, when you go from four to three, that's different from saying from three to two. But it's really, that, that's when you start getting the question of, you know, is this too much consolidation? Sure. Yeah. Okay, we'll take a short break here. Okay. My guest today is Dr. Jerry McGinn, Executive Director of the Center for Government Contracting in the School of Business 
at George Mason University. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin, on this discussion, How Government Contracting Policies Impact National Security, sponsored by George Mason University, here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. The executive MBA in national security from George Mason University transforms current and aspiring leaders from the military, government, and corporate sectors into business leaders who understand the unique demands of the national security sector. Get the skills of an MBA, plus deep insights into both national security and government contracting. Learn from MBA faculty and national security experts through discussions, projects, simulations, case analysis, executive coaching, and a D.C. residency. More at business.gmu.edu slash EMBA. Welcome back to our discussion, How Government Contracting Policies Impact National Security, sponsored by George Mason University here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. My guest today is Dr. Jerry McGinn, Executive Director of the Center for Government Contracting School of Business at George Mason University. And Jerry, you're not simply an academic here. You have some history in this acquisition area in the government, out of the government. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, yeah, that's right, Tom. I really can't keep a job. I've been on all different sides of the broad government contracting community. I was an Army officer way back when, early in my career. Then I got too much education at Georgetown and was in the think tank world. And then I've been, since then, in and out of industry and government in various roles and uh, been at George Mason now for about a year. Um, and it's, it's an honor to be able to work because it's important to have the permeability across the, the broad government contracting community because I think government works better when they understand industry and likewise industry works better when they understand the government. And before the break, we were talking about some massive mergers, the United mm-hmm. Technologies and Raytheon and the history mm-hmm. of those. And we were also talking about the inculcation of small and non-traditional contractors via OTA and other Mm -hmm. innovative so-called contracting mechanisms. But then there's that middle tier of middle companies that sometimes get the big ones, sometimes get the small contracts. And that's always a concern because Mm -hmm. that's where really most of the M&A activity takes place, I think, from a functional level. What's your sense of how they're doing and what government can do in the contracting sense in the acquisition sense to make sure that that level survives. That is that is a, um, a challenge um, in the you know, broad aerospace and defense industry is strengthening the middle tier. I, and I think you, you, you will, you'll find a lot of competition it, when you break it down in the services area there because there's, there are much lower barriers to entry. So you'll see companies that grow and get big pretty quickly. You know, mm-hmm. you get the Peritons that have come up and you've got, you know, KW, which was bought by Jacobs. And, these kind of companies, so you have growth and development in the middle tier there. It's harder in the platform companies, um, platform arena, because what happens is they get bigger and they get bought. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Orbital ATK was bought by North Grumman recently. Um, so finding, you know, so right now you, the traditional perception of the industry is you have sort of a dumbbell or a barbell kind of, where you've got the big companies, uh, the primes, and then you have a lot of smalls. And it's harder to get the middle tier built, but it is important. And the way the government can help is by incentivizing, by having more opportunities um, in Department of Defense and other agencies. When they have more contracts, then you have more reasons for companies to pursue, uh, and then they can get bigger and more prime opportunities and the like. So, so the government can incentivize by having more opportunities um, of different scales so you, um, and not necessarily set aside for small so that you can grow companies mm-hmm. in that middle tier. Because you want to have a vibrant um, uh, spectrum of companies 
serving your government customers. And there's that other dynamic that a lot of these companies are launched with the purposes of, of reaching size that mm -hmm. they will be acquired. Yes, and yeah, maybe the right. same Absolutely. people doing it over and over in yes. some cases. Yeah. Yes, you do. The rinse and repeat cycle is one of my favorite. <laughs> yeah, rinse you and know, repeat, yeah. You know, that, uh, that <laughs> well, that's what keeps the golf courses filled and, 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 and the country clubs uh, going. In, indeed. And uh, I guess my other question is, earlier we spoke about the coursework mm -hmm. that you do that's in the FAR and the highly regulated areas, the DFAR, mm -hmm. that form the backdrop of all this. But it seems to me that to make the well-rounded acquisition contracting person, they really do have to understand the business dynamics, have to be able to understand a balance yeah. sheet and so on. So we sort of take the inverse uh, to uh, to the approach in the sense that you know there are there are there are places like Defense Acquisition University and other kind of places that do detailed training on the FAR, which is tremendous. Um, but um, but the, the, what you find is business schools generally just teach business, you know, which is there aren't many business cases or courses that are focused on the particular challenges of the government contracting industry. And so that's what we're trying to do at Mason. We're, we've relaun we're relaunching our executive MBA program to meet that need, to really um, build courses that have a flavor of government contracting or defense that really can give the executives um, or transitioning officers coming into the, the industry, give them a, a, the business basic principles, but how they apply in the, in the, in the companies that serve the government customer. So, so that's the, uh, what Mason is uh, working to do in our educational offerings. Yeah, and I was going to say that um, it actually is an exciting area, mm -hmm. and it takes a lot of brain power to do this well. Mm -hmm. How do you, given the competition for business talent and graduate business talent that is from industry, how do you convince people that, you know what, acquisition on behalf of the government is tremendously subtle, it's exciting, it's difficult, it's challenging, mm -hmm. and it's really a great career uh, I mean, how do you get that across? I mean, you, you get that through, I mean, the majority of our students are already working, either working in the industry and, or working in government. So they're uniformed officers or they're, um, you know, they're reserve officers or reserved um, soldiers or, or sa sailors, or they're working for a, a company. So they're trying to move up in their career. So, I mean, so I think they're already, the, system, the ecosystem is already so large um, and it's, a lot of it's based here in the D.C. metro area, so that Mason is just filling that need. So. Now, how national is it really, though? The, I mean, the well, the industry is, you know, it is, it is quite national. I mean, you've got, you know, when you go to California, it's the heart of the, heart of the aerospace industry, uh, the, or the, the origins of the aerospace industry, and there's still tremendous there. There's tremendous amounts in Arizona, Colorado, Florida, you know, Massachusetts, you name it. It, is quite, it spans the overall United States. But there is a a big kind of center of mass. A number of the, the companies have are headquartered here in the D.C. metro area or have moved um, their headquarters here, uh, and so you have this is one of the major nodes for for the uh, for the overall. And company. one of the hallmarks of the U.S. procurement system is that fundamentally it's honest. Mm -hmm. You know, there's exceptions that happen from time right. to time, but it's unlike so many countries. Mm -hmm. And is that part of the training and development work that you do is to make sure that the ethical side. Well, absolutely. I mean, ethics, robustness. Ethics is a is a critical part of business, and and likewise in business that impacts the public sector, it's it is even heightened in sense of the strict regulatory requirements in that area. Yes, indeed. All right, good place to take a break. My guest today is Dr. Jerry McGinn. He is the executive director of the Center for Government Contracting in the School of Business at George Mason University. I'm Tom Temin. Our discussion is how government contracting policies impact national security. 
sponsored by George Mason University on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. The executive MBA in national security from George Mason University transforms current and aspiring leaders from the military, government, and corporate sectors into business leaders who understand the unique demands of the national security sector. Get the skills of an MBA plus deep insights into both national security and government contracting. Learn from MBA faculty and national security experts through discussions, projects, simulations, case analysis, executive coaching, and a D.C. residency. More at business.gmu.edu slash EMBA. Welcome back to our discussion, how government contracting policies impact national security. Sponsored by George Mason University here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. My guest today is Dr. Jerry McGinn, Executive Director of the Center for Government Contracting in the School of Business at George Mason University. And let's talk about national security for a minute. This whole Huawei business, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFUS, there's a lot of ferment going on here. Indeed. What do you make of it all? Yeah, I know CFIUS, or uh, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, is not a disease. As, uh, that was one of the first <laughs> things we would say when I was in government. It, it was the most classified work that I dealt with when I was in government. And it, it is incredibly important because uh, what CFIUS does is it, it um, foreign investment is a critical uh, thing in the United States. You know, the U.S. government supports it, the Department of Defense supports it. But each of these transactions have to be reviewed to see what their mm -hmm. impact is on national security. So when there's a transaction, a foreign company buys a U.S. property or does a major investment in above certain, that's where CFIUS kicks in. And what, they, what the review is about is the national security implications of mm -hmm. this transaction. And then when you've got, so when you look at the um, prior to about 2010, about 95% of the transactions before the committee were involving NATO countries or Japan, Australia, North and South Korea, mm -hmm. um, which you know are close allies that we operate with every day. Uh, but since you know in the last several years, a tremendous number of transactions have come from Asia, particularly from China, to over 35% of the transactions in recent years. And those are very much more complex, uh, and, um, and because the Chinese government has stated that they're, they they want their companies to do things like work on artificial intelligence and um, and robotics and the like, and those are inherently sensitive areas. So the um, you've seen that with the transactions um, involving Chinese companies, mm -hmm. and that really comes home with with companies like Huawei and ZTE. Yeah, I mean it's become. I mean this has always been a concern. I remember, I guess it was in the '80s that there was concern that Japanese real estate interests acquired Rockefeller Center. Mm -hmm and all the car business that happened mm -hmm. then. But that was primarily economic. Right. No one thought Japan was a threat to the United States, but right. Chinese investment brings a different shade to it in the sense of they are an economic competitor, but also a major military and, uh, right. and, and almost empire competitor. Yes, yeah, no, it is, it is inherently that way. And particularly when they're dealing with our networks on which our uh, national defense systems operate, you know. So having those run on um, uh, routers or systems that are Chinese origin, when the Chinese government, by publicly declared law, has the ability to to tell, tell the companies to turn over their investment, turn over their their kit to the the Chinese government, that's inherently a national security issue for for the U.S. Sure, and uh, also Russia because there was the yeah. software deals with Russia yes. and the. Uh, the security software that was on yeah. federal systems. At what point, and you know, how do you convey this? At what point does it become, this is something beyond the contracting officer or this particular shop that's buying and becomes an issue where Congress gets involved and where it really gets to be a policy issue 
and not just an acquisition issue on the spot. And, and you have seen this. That's a great question, Tom. You've seen this with the recent uh, law that was passed in 2018 on the, it was a, the, uh, that modernized the CFIUS process. It was the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, I believe, FIRMA. Mm-hmm. And, and that was about changing um, the way in which we look at foreign investment because previously it was focusing on things like support security and, you know, and real estate transactions, but it didn't really get at some of these areas which are advanced technologies. Um, and um, so that's where the, 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 uh, the law needs to be modernized and Congress, and I testified before uh, Congress in closed session and, and a lot of my colleagues in the department, former colleagues did as well, across the government and, and the Congress agreed and they changed the law. And what it did, it allows uh, U.S. government actually to operate, um, to coordinate with allies um, on these kind of business dealings to understand what the risks are to national security and international security. So um, so there's, that was a good, uh, in my view, a good illustration of, of, um, of a cooperative effort between the branches of government to address the national security issue in the contracting. Yeah, in fact, it takes funny turns when Chinese interests bought the Waldorf Astoria. Yeah. Suddenly our delegations to the UN couldn't stay there anymore because right. who knows what they were putting in the walls during the, right. uh, the renovation. The ambassador used to live there, I believe, right? Well, I but believe no so, more. yeah, at yeah. least during the uh, UN sessions. Yeah, yeah. No, no more had to no move more. <laughs> and, um Let's talk about the NDAAs. Those have always been a vehicle for a lot of procurement and acquisition changes. Uh, not only just the DOD side, but they slip in a lot of civilian things there, too. Yeah, indeed. A little bit less this time around for 2020, so far as we can tell. What's your take on NDAA activity, and what are you expecting? I'm not expecting as much because the uh, the, the committees, both uh, the Senate and the House, have been tremendously active under former Chairman Thornberry and former Chairman, the late John McCain, uh, on doing acquisition reform. And those efforts have given the Department of Defense lots of um, activities to work on, you know, in military acquisition, on, um, you know, small business reform, on rapid acquisition, rapid prototyping. Uh, and it's just, it is hard for the department to digest these, and it's hard for any government agency to digest them rapidly. So, um, and government moves slow at the best of times, um, and, and my former colleagues in government would agree with that. Uh, but so they've sort of, I think, the department and other agencies have said, let's, let's pause a little bit and we're going to keep working on you, with, with you to implement the provisions you've given us, the authorities, and we'll see how those work. Um, at least that's been the argument. And so. the big picture really for DOD is this pivot from the uh, emphases they've had for the past 20 years to, to the big power competition, return right. to big power competition. That's correct. Overlaid on that is their perceived need, and probably a real need, for a new round of offset in technology. Those Mm -hmm. are the the ultimate challenges that we have right now, Mm -hmm. besides readiness and day-to-day issues. Uh, Briefly, do you feel that their acquisition systems and and, uh, and initiatives are aligned with those two needs, the offset and the great powers competition? Well, I think that they're, they're putting all their efforts towards those ends. Now, whether the the system right now it, it is not necessarily optimized to do those kind of things, which is why they're doing these like middle tier acquisition and OTEs and the like. And, and the question is, is um, will these get them far enough or do they need to do more? And those are the kind of research issues that my center is, is looking to tackle and the, and, and the kind of things that the government is trying to figure out and uh, industry is trying to support. So uh, I think that it's it's a, an open question, I think, Tom, for for at least a short run, but I think that, uh, that that's the direction they're heading. 
And I think that, you know, I think it's important for the whole the government contracting community to move in that direction. All right. Well, thank you for all the work you're doing, and thanks for being with us today. Great. Well, it's a real pleasure. Great to meet you. My guest today has been Dr. Jerry McGinn, Executive Director of the Center for Government Contracting in the School of Business at George Mason University. I'm Tom Temin. You're listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search George Mason. Thank you for listening to the discussion, How Government Contracting Policies Impact National Security, sponsored by George Mason University on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.